Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for being with us through every trial, every struggle, every triumph, every victory in our lives, in every case that involves our loved ones and involves us. We thank you that we are able to count you faithful to be with us in those times of struggle and trial. There is no other God like you, Lord, that comes alongside the people that you have created and made for yourself. And we thank you, Lord, that you know us and you know us by name and you want us to know you and to know you by name. And we bless you, Lord, for that privilege, that great holy privilege of knowing Jesus Christ who died for us that we might live forever. As we come to your precious word, we ask that you would fill us and anoint us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit and grant us the opportunity to see and to understand and to know, Lord, your word as it, as it helps us to look forward to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grant us wisdom and understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Isaiah chapter 11. We looked rather carefully at the first couple of verses last time, and we want to continue on through the rest of this chapter tonight. And so I'd like to begin reading at verse 1 that we might get a, a handle on the context of all of this chapter, chapter 11. So we'll begin with verse 1. There shall come forth a a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth, with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Last week as we began our study in the 11th chapter of Isaiah it was of utmost importance to reestablish the lineage and the dynasty of the house of David through his father Jesse in the prophecy that was to be carried forward 
to the second coming of the Messiah of Israel, Jesus. Along with that, we looked at the Messiah's spiritual empowerment in verse 2 through the seven aspects of the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord Himself, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. In verses 3 through 5 now, as we continue, we take a look at the perfect character of the Messiah, the perfect character of Jesus. Now it needs to be remembered that from the moment of His birth, the Lord Jesus was under the controlling power of the Holy Spirit. Never for a moment was Jesus outside of that influence. Never for a moment was Jesus apart from or away from the controlling power of the Holy Spirit. For as man on earth, He chose not to act on His own omnipotence. In other words, He he chose not to act in His own almighty power, but as the servant of the Godhead. And we are reminded by Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, of that very same character, the very character of the servant that he was to be for us. When it says in verse 5 of Philippians 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, of no reputation. Notice that. That's a very important phrase here. But made himself. This is what theologians call the kenosis. It comes from a word kenu that deals with this uh, act of emptying himself. Some translations will say he emptied himself and became of no reputation. But he made himself. In other words, this is a, his voluntary act. He made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. But all along this whole path of his life, this whole way that we see Jesus from birth, to young man, to grown man, never out from under the controlling influence and power of the Holy Spirit. Notice that after his baptism in the Jordan, and we talked a little bit about this last time, but after his baptism in the Jordan, the Spirit was seen descending upon him as a dove. Never for one moment was Jesus ever out of harmony with the Spirit making it possible for him to grow in wisdom, to grow in stature, and to grow in favor. You might say, you mean Jesus had to grow in these things? We're told that in Luke chapter 2, verses, oh well, verse 52. This is, of course, after uh, he had already grown as a young boy and, and, and teaching teachers in, this, in the temple. 
And after they found Jesus about this father's business, this is what it says in verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And I would say that if we are under the influence and the power and the control of the Holy Spirit, as we should be, then these things also must happen in our own lives. That we are increasing in wisdom. That we are increasing in stature. Not physical stature so much, but in our stature spiritually with God. And in favor with God and men. You know, men may say a lot of things about us. Men may do things toward us in hostility because of Christ and because of our love for God and our love for Christ. But even Peter would have pointed it out, and he did point out in one of his letters, that even when people do this, they need to see that you are standing in character. There's a favor inside of them looking towards you because you stood faithful. You've stood right. You've stood humble. You've stood honest. You've stood on these things, and they don't know how to act about it. You've stayed sincere. See, these are all those characteristics that come when we surrender ourselves to the power and the the, uh, control of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Spirit. The leading of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit together. And we've tied these things together last time too. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, goodness, kindness, so on and so forth. So you see, these things are supposed to come forth out of us. And Jesus increased in these things. And so verse 3 then in our, con- in, in our text continues then to describe the character and the work of the branch. The branch that comes from that stump out of Jesse that came David and of course the line of David. But it tells us that the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That is, will empower him for his work, which would be characterized now by wisdom, by understanding, by counsel, by might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And then in verse 3 it says, His delight is in the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And by the way, belts, of course, in those days and times were used for the sake of girding and preparation and being ready. Some would say that this is the preparation that he was getting ready to come and to judge the world. Certainly that is, that is true. But there is also that readiness of his character, the readiness of righteousness, the readiness of justice and faithfulness. But first of all, as we go back to verse 3, it tells us that nothing pleased Jesus more. Nothing pleases Jesus more than to do the will of his Father. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And you'll understand when you begin to read about the fear of the Lord through the Scriptures, especially in Psalms and in Proverbs. There are many times when we find in the Scriptures the phrase, the fear of the Lord. And many times, uh, most of the times, it's connected to obedience to the commandments, obedience to the will of God, obedience to the way of God, obedience to the Word of God. 
So nothing pleases Jesus more than to do the will of His Father. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. And I love that Jesus said, says this, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. It's not only to do the will, but to finish and to accomplish. You see, it's a sad fact that most Christians, or many Christians, I should say most, but many Christians want to begin with the Lord, but they don't finish with the Lord, or they don't finish strong with the Lord, or they don't finish what they know God has called them to do. And they begin things with the Lord, quote-unquote, projects with the Lord. Or they say, God spoke to me and told me to do this, and they do it for about three days, and then they stop doing it. What happened? Oh, I thought I heard from the Lord. Well, maybe you thought you did. Maybe you never did. See, the fact of the matter is, once we know what God's will is, we start to do it, and, you know, He's going to be there to give us strength. He said, "He, who, you know, the Scripture says, He who began a good work in you is able to complete it until the day of Christ. God begins to work in us. He's not going to, he's not going to finish. I mean, He's not going to not finish. He's going to complete the work that He begins. We need to realize that we have works that we need to do for the Lord, that we are called to do, that we are actually chosen to do. We, we alone are chosen to do those things. But we can, you know, start to do something and all of a sudden, you know, well, I'll finish it someday. I, I know, I mean, I, I, myself, I'm still working on projects at home. I said, I'll start this project. Still working on it. Four years later, I might get to the finish line one of these days. You know, that's the house. I mean, I'm going to try to do that, but I know when it comes to the Lord's house and when it comes to the things of the Lord, I need to complete those things. Working toward that completion. Jesus said, he, you know, his food is to do the will of him who sent him and to finish his work. To finish the work. And you know what he did? He said, it is finished. When he was on the cross, he said, it's finished. The work is complete. So that's our example. But it's interesting that in our text where it says his delight is in the fear of the Lord, his delight relates to the sense of smell or perceiving scent or, or, or odor in acceptance. That's what that word means, his delight. The delight of, of, of the sense of smell or the scent in acceptance. The idea is that of delighting in the smell of something, like, like the fresh smell of bread baking in the oven. How many of you like that smell? I, I love that smell. Baker, I wish I lived next door to a bakery. No, I don't. I, I know what would happen. I wouldn't be able to come up those stairs. And, or I wouldn't be able to get down those stairs. Either way. But there's something about that delight. And, and this is the word that is used here. About that sense of smell. But here the thing that Jesus would delight is in the fear of the Lord. But let me, let me just give you this encouragement. Don't be afraid of the fear of the Lord. Don't be afraid of the fear of the Lord. I mean, that you know, it may seem a bit mixed up. You know, don't be afraid of the fear of the Lord. <laughs> but sometimes we get the idea that the fear of the Lord is some unpleasant sort of thing. Oh, the fear of the Lord, you know. 
And we get panicky, you know, and we get anxious. What's the fear of the Lord? Well, you know, if you read the Scriptures and you look up the fear of the Lord, you're going to find out that it's a good thing. It's something to delight in. Because there, there can be a great sense of peace and relief when we know that you're operating within the boundaries that the Lord desires for you. If you're working within the boundaries of the work that the Lord desires you to do, then you're going to delight in peace. And you're going to uh, be in relief. I mean, it is all, oh, thank you, Lord, that I'm, I'm working within the fear of God. In other words, fearing Him in awe and respect. Fearing Him in awe, respect, and reverence of the things that He says to us in His Word. You see, it always comes back to that understanding what God has in His Word for us to do, and we fear the Lord in respect, we bow before Him. You know, there's, there's, there's quite a need for that nowadays in the church because there's so much emphasis upon man, there's so much emphasis upon man's desires and man's needs and man's wants, that we forget that God is a God that's worthy of our praise whether we get anything from Him or not. Whether we get anything physical from Him or not, or material from Him or not. Hey, God is worthy of our praise. God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our bowing down to Him because He is God and we're not. We need to delight in that peace. In Isaiah chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, it says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. What an encouragement for the people of God. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Listen, we are to fear the Lord in awe and reverence, but we can have perfect peace when our mind is stayed upon the Lord. It's fixed upon the Lord. Fixed upon the goodness of God. Fixed upon the grace of God. Fixed upon the mercy of God. Fixed upon the truth of God. It's fixed on Him. I don't turn to the right or to the left. I look to Him because He's got the wisdom. He's got the understanding. He's got the power. He's got the might. Where else am I going to look? To whom else can I, can I trust? Can I trust any of you? You guys don't know how to answer. Of course not. And you can't trust me. But you can trust Him. You understand what I'm saying? Turn to Job 28, verse 28. I'm telling you to turn there because this is a tremendous verse of Scripture. The revelation that God was giving Job through his particular trials and struggles may just be the very place we are. And Job now is, is speaking forth, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Job says, And to man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. You see the connection. There's a connection here. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. Departing from evil is understanding. 
It, it, it's, it's the same coin. It's two sides of one coin. You can't separate this. We need them both. We need the wisdom of God and the fear of the Lord. And we need to depart from evil because in, in so doing, we gain the understanding God wants us to have of being at peace with Him and delighting in the fear of the Lord. And there are many other verses, but let me give you just one more. Proverbs 9, verse 10. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's just the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I desire so much to bring you to that place where you can know the Lord personally, fully and completely each and every day. You may not know Him fully and completely in the sense of of having all the knowledge of Him, but every day you can know Him more. You can know Him better. And it's a good thing that we can know God. I mentioned this last weekend that, that, you know, there's so many religions out there. None of them have a personal God. All all their gods are gods. Well, in in the case of Buddhism, there's no God at all until you become God yourself. But outside of all that, there's no religion that has a God that you can actually just come to. Except the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the God who is the God... of the children of Abraham who are the children of faith. The only God that can be known. Now we may not know everything about Him. And even if we've known Christ for 50 years, we, we may know, you know, 50 years of, of knowing God, but, but we still don't know everything we can. But that's the greatness of our God. Yet to give us the opportunity to know Him even a little bit more every day, or a lot more every day and still not have enough. Listen, when we get to heaven, we're going to be able to know more, but will we ever know everything? It'll be a perfect understanding in heaven. We don't have a perfect understanding right now. So it'll be better than it is now, but still, God is so great. How can we know Him? Yet we can, because He's given us the opportunity. Remember this weekend we talked about Jesus dying on the cross saying it is finished, saying the debt is paid. And when he gave up the Spirit, what happened? The the veil in the temple was torn in two, God making access to the cross and to the blood of Christ for us who believe to come into the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace for help in time of need. That's the God that we can know. Getting back to our text here, it says, And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. In the Old Testament, the act of pronouncing judgment in the court is often treated as as the acid test of a wise, honorable, and incorruptible use of authority. What this does not mean, when he says, He shall not judge by the sight of the eyes, nor decide by the hearing of the ears, what it does not mean is that right judgment ignores evidence available to the senses, but rather that it requires an inner quality, or it requires inner qualities of character. 
That is why he says, He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, appearance, nor decide by the hearing of the ears, by hearing the arguments, as it were, or hearing the testimonies. The Messiah judges with an inward quality and judges inward qualities. Back in John chapter 2, in the Gospel of John chapter 2, verse 23. In verse 23, I said, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But notice, that's that's an important statement. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. You see, simply Jesus didn't need help to evaluate men. He did not need help to evaluate men. Later on in John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus would say, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. This is the whole purpose here. Jesus doesn't need help evaluating, uh, need human help to evaluate men. But then I want you to consider something else. Consider, if you will, Psalm 72. Psalm 72, verses 1 through 4. This is a psalm of Solomon, uh, by the way. It says, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Sounds like the text we're looking at today. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. You see, Jesus didn't rely on outward appearance or by mere words that someone said. The sight of the eyes, the hearing of the ears. Jesus didn't judge and doesn't judge in this manner. And by the way, Jesus didn't cheat the poor of justice. And if the poor and the weak are given justice, then all will be given justice. You see, we want to believe that in our country we have the best justice system in the world. That's not always true. We like to believe that it's better than all the others. But we've discovered, because we have Fox News and CNN and all these other you know, daily organizations that give us the news on the drop of a hat, immediately when we... You know, turn on to see what's going on in the world. All of a sudden we see all of these corruptions going on in our own justice systems. And we think, what's wrong with this world? And still we'll turn around and say, oh boy, this is terrible in our country, but it's still better than in other countries. And it might be, but it still doesn't mean that the justice has been done. Because the only perfect justice will come from the one who judges from The inner qualities of the heart judges the inner qualities of man, not the outer things. God doesn't need to see or to see or hear. God doesn't need to see or hear to know. He knows the heart, and this is how He judges. In Psalm 82, verses 1 through 4, notice it says, "God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods." Oh boy, some people really love that verse. You see, we can be gods. I don't think I want to be if you know, you know that he's going to judge you. You know what he's saying? He's judging the judges. That's what he's saying. 
The word is the Elohim, but it's used for judges. And God is judging the judges. Notice, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That's the question to the gods. People want to be gods. God is one God, but we're little gods with Him. No, you're not. You're an idiot. If you think that you want to be a god and then be judged for it, hey, have at it, man. I don't want that. You understand what I'm saying here? You understand what God is saying? You see how you can take scriptures out of context and make, you know, uh, doctrines out of them? Look, we can be gods. I don't want to be that kind of God. I'm running from that kind of God. But I'll tell you what, we can judge righteously. As a matter of fact, when you read Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, God tells us that we're not, you know, judge not lest you be judged. Yet in that same chapter, He tells us we need to be discerning. You know what it means to discern? It means to judge rightly. Judge properly. I ain't take, I'm, I'm not taking any lead bullet that says you're a God. Uh-uh. Because look at what he says. How long will you judge unjustly? Yikes! And show partiality to the wicked. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Now he's coming down on them. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. That is what Christ is coming to do. That is what He is coming to do to this earth. Why? Because man has been unjust and unjust to man. No equity whatsoever shown. The more money you have, the better off you are, right? Isn't that the truth? I mean, isn't that the truth for this world? The poor get poor, the richer get richer. Oftentimes people say, well, it's safe to be in the middle class. You know what? The, the lines of the middle class are be erasing. Because of greed and selfishness. So what is God going to do? What is the Messiah going to do when He comes? He shall strike the earth with a rod of His mouth. you all see that phrase there? He shall strike the earth with a rod of His mouth. The mere words of Jesus, the mere words of Jesus have the power to judge the wicked. He shall strike the earth with a rod of His mouth. He only has to pronounce a judgment and it is done. That's all he has to do. That's all he has to do. Pronounce a judgment and it's done. It's not in my notes, but in Revelation 19. Very quickly, I'm going to share this with you. Revelation 19, I believe it's verse 15. At the coming of Jesus, it says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. You'll see that? Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And here it says, He shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. But then, that's not it. That's not all that it says. But going back to uh, Isaiah 11, it says, And with the breath of his lips, let's go on, with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. With the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. <laughs> and with the breath of his lips, there it is, somewhere. It's coming, it's coming. Where is it? I'm freaking him out, I'm sorry. I don't mean to freak you out. <laughs> Verse 4. <laughs> Verse 4. Verse 4. And with the breath of his lips, 
That's okay. Praise the Lord. Hey, we've learned a lot, man. We've got all kinds of scriptures up there. All right. Verse 4. All right. With the breath of his lips, <laughs> he shall slay the wicked. This is another important, very important snippet here. With the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Our, our idea is the slay of the wicked, plural. But the rabbis of old, the old, old rabbis, who really paid attention to the Word of God, to every jot, to every tittle, they adhered to the initial interpretation that this was not just about the wicked, plural, or in general, but that it was concerning the wicked one, who we would have to refer to as the Jewish Antichrist. They wouldn't call him Antichrist because Christ was not part of their, you know. But to the false Messiah. To the false Messiah. Paul refers to this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Please turn there and look. For in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 7 and 8, Paul says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, that speaking of the Holy Spirit, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. In other words, when the church, you know, is taken out of the way. That restraining element of the power of the Holy Spirit in the church is going to be taken out of the way. But notice this. In verse 8 it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom, notice, the Lord will consume with what? With the breath of His mouth and destroy with the brightness of His coming. You see, the Lord still has a purpose to deal with the one who's causing all the problems in the world. We will look at him as the Antichrist. We will call him the beast. And there will be also a false prophet. But this is the false Messiah. So just so you can see now, yes, he will come, he will judge and slay the wicked. But this will also refer to the one who will want to take the place of Messiah. And so as we see in verse 5, righteousness and justice or faithfulness, as close to Jesus as belts around his waist, will be important aspects of Jesus' reign. Righteousness and justice. He is righteous in that everything he does will be absolutely right and correct. He is just and faithful in that he will never falter or fail. We will always be able to depend upon our Messiah. We will always be able to depend upon our Messiah. And moving on now in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 6 and through verse 9. It says the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with a young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. 
and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a beautiful picture of the millennial kingdom and the millennial reign of Christ. You know, up to this point in the, in the book of Isaiah, we've been given a lot of pictures of judgment. A lot of reminders that when, when, we, when, when God's people take their eyes off of the Lord and begin to do what they want to do, you know, God is going to have to bring chastisement. God is going to have to bring uh, judgment. But he's also reminding his people, look, Messiah is coming. These are the things that you need to remember. These are the things that you need to know about the coming of the Lord. And when the Messiah reigns, all of nature will be transformed. Everything, you know, it, it, it's, like, it's, it's like he's just setting things straight and right. You know, when they said in the book of Acts that, the, you know, that there, there was the Christians that, was tur- that, that were turning the world upside down, they were turning the world right side up. But not like Christ when He comes... When he comes, he really turns things inside out, right side up, and you name it, however it, it's all you know, messed up now, he's going to make it right. Everything about this earth is going to be right. In that day, the curse will be lifted from the lower creation. The very nature of the beasts of the earth is, will be changed. The very nature will be changed. There are those who have, you know, there are those who have spiritualized this passage to represent violent and savage men whose whose hearts will be changed by regeneration. These are the people that spiritualize everything about the end times. They're the ones that will tell you, well, you know, there's not really any Israel anymore. They, you know, the, the, it's the church now that are going to get reached. Well, I tell you what, there's a place called Israel, and they're still there, and. They're coming back, just like the Bible said. So, you know, you can believe what you want, but I tell you this, if you're starting to believe everything has to be spiritualized about the end times, you've got something wrong with your view of, of prophecy. Because the prophet gives no indication of such an application of his words. He's not applying these words as if they, they were just to be spiritualized. You can do that actually with language, but he doesn't do it here. He says this is what's going to take place. He is speaking definitely of that which God will do for the animal kingdom in the day when Messiah reigns. As a matter of fact, if you go, you know, you can go back to the book of Genesis, I believe it's in chapter 9, but there's a, there's a place where man is given the opportunity now to you know, have dominion over animals, but also then to eat meat. Yet the animals were never, you know, just said to sit there, you know. <laughs> oh, look, I'm going to be dinner. You know, they, they don't do that. I mean, you know, they were given, you know, the, the sense of, of, of being the beasts that they're to be to protect themselves as well. It's an interesting thing. But now this is going to be turned around. Not that their beasts are going to eat us, but uh, the fact that, that they're actually going to be gentle again. They're going to be gentle in the sense that they're going to be able... Look at, look at the wolf is going to be with a lamb. A lot of people have said there's the lion and the lamb, but it's actually the wolf and the lamb. The wolf and the lamb are going to be together. The leopard is going to lie down with the young goat. 
And they're not going to look at them with these visions of, of you know, pork chops or anything like that, or, or lamb chops or anything like that. The calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and the little child will lead them. Little child, little babies are going to be leading all these animals. Man, you know what? Forget it if you think you're going to have a zoo. You can't have a zoo anymore because all the animals are nice. And everybody will have them, you know, in the millennial kingdom. I mean, it's a great picture. The lion shall eat uh, straw like the ox. Right now, the lion will eat the ox on top of straw. You know, it's all, see, it just turns the whole picture around. So ideal conditions will prevail on the earth. Conditions that characterized the world before sin came in, and, and marred God's creation. No longer will there be predators and scavengers among the animals, and seemingly all animals will be herbivores. I mean, you know, the cows and the bears are grazing together. Can you imagine that? Cows and bears grazing together, lions eating straw like the ox. Right now, nature is waiting for this transformation that will come when Messiah reigns and believers are glorified. Turn to Romans chapter 8. All of creation, except the ones who have the brains to think about it, all the rest of creation, I should say, is waiting for this transformation. Romans 8 verse 19 says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. There's that phrase again, the birth pangs. Always a, a, a statement dealing with the end time, dealing with, with uh, uh, prophet, prophetic issues. So creation's waiting for this transformation. And a little child shall lead them, it says. Not only will the animals relate to each other uh, uh, not only will the way animals relate to each other be changed, but, but the way they relate to humans will be changed. A little child will be safe and be able to lead a wolf or leopard or young lion or even, even a bear. So even the most uh, dangerous and venomous of predators, I mean, uh, the dangers will no longer exist. And here's the reason why. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. This knowledge of the Lord will be in a relational sense rather than just in an intellectual sense. It is a relational sense. Everybody will know God. Now, this is what makes the millennial reign of Christ so glorious. And the millennial reign of Christ is going to be glorious. Consider what is said in Jeremiah's prophecy, in Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 33. It says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. 
For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. All the world, all will know the Lord. It will be only those now who know the Lord that will be safe in His kingdom. Now, when we study the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, we have to understand, Christ will reign for a thousand years on this earth. At the very end of the millennial reign of Christ, the Bible indicates to us, there will be a time when, when, when the enemy will be released to go about to, you know, to uh, uh, you know, deceive if, you know, the people living on the earth at that time. That's an interesting thought. We we'll have to get to it another time. But, but the fact of the matter is those who know the Lord will be safe in His kingdom. Now I have to ask you a question. Because it comes back to how we know God. Is God just some cosmic force to you? Or have you found that He's a real person and very much alive? Very much alive today. We converse with Him. We speak to Him. We pray to Him. We hear from His Word. You know, and His Word is alive to us. I mean, is He just a force? Thinking that He's a force is just a farce. And it's a lie. You see, we, we got into that, that new age, you know, we've, we've passed that the last 25 years or so after Star Wars, you know, and, and little Yoda telling you the force will be with you, you know, and some little green guy, that uh, cartoon character, whatever. You know. Great story if you like stories, but I mean, that's all it is. But then they start, but yeah, but oh, there's a cosmic force that holds everything. Yeah, there's a good side and a bad side. Oh, that's a good guy, you know. Where did that come from? See, that's, that's, that's really New Age, uh, you know, Hinduism. It's not, uh, it's, it's not biblical. Coming to know God personally starts with the very thing that Jeremiah is saying here. The forgiveness of your sins. It is our sins that keep us from knowing God personally in the first place. And until our sins are forgiven and taken out of the way, it is impossible for any human to know Him in truth. But the Lord can offer you forgiveness for your sins... Because He graciously paid the debt, your sins have rung up. Those who paid for, uh, those were paid for when Jesus died on the cross. Paying the penalty of death instead of us. Now all that remains is that a person is willing to allow Him to pay the price for their sins. And you wonder, why is that so hard for some people? Jesus said it's finished. In other words, paid in full. Come to me. What makes it so hard? Sin. <laughs> Blinds man. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of His Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so that is the covenant that He would make. That one day, we will be able to reign with Him in His millennial kingdom, being completely forgiven of all of our sins, cleansed, and serving with the Lord. Going on in verses 10 and through 12, 
It says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt. Pretty much we know where those are, Assyria far east from Israel. Egypt, of course, to the southwest of Israel. From Pathros and Cush, which are also to the west and southwest of Israel. From Elam and Shinar, or Shinar. From Hamath and the islands of the sea. That uh, a lot of people still think it's just the coastlands up along the Mediterranean. But he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And the word corners there literally is the word wings. So from the four wings of the earth. And gather together. And that's kind of an interesting thing to say because they didn't, you know, I mean, back in, you know, the Bible actually really taught that the world was round, but nobody, you know, everybody else was like, Ugh. Uh, because God says, you know, the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, west. You know, and that's how we've divided, you know, our, our globe and all of that. But anyway, that's another story. The glorious reign of Messiah will not be only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. It is when Jesus returns in glory, and as the root of Jesse fulfills the promises made to David, that all these things shall come to pass. Then Jacob's prophecy, as given in Genesis 49, verse 10, will have its glorious fulfillment. Look at Genesis 14, I'm sorry, 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now I want to read that in the King James, because the King James is a more literal translation of this passage. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. You see, unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So in that day we are told that God will not only magnify him in the eyes of Israel, but also unto him shall the Gentiles seek. His own earthly people, scattered for so long among the nations, will be gathered back to their own land. Many thought that the promises of the restoration were fulfilled long ago, when a remnant returned in the days of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. One reason for that is that they look at the, at the uh, exodus from Egypt as, as their return so, so, so much to the land, you know, or their first return to the land. You know, but uh, when you think about it, uh, it was just certain tribes that were taken into Egypt, and they were there for over 400 years. And so they, you know, never really had their own land. I mean, you know, there was promise to them and, as a people. But they were in return. They were actually going there for the first time. So, you know, the, the return is not this particular thing because that would, that would have already happened. Happened before this, you see. Or, or I should be, would be happening right at the same time. Don't, I'm not trying to confuse you here. But that this remnant would have returned in the days of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But I want you to look at verse 11. This will clarify it all. Because it says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people who are left. And notice the places from where. Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. So everything you know, to the east and the west. And then we learn that they will return not simply from Babylon as, as before, 
but from all the lands where they have been dispersed throughout the many centuries of their sorrow and suffering. They would still have to go through that way after the prophecy, the uh, near prophecy would be fulfilled. But as for verse 12 now, Israel and Judah will no longer be divided and will be drawn to the Lord himself, the banner to be set up in that day, and shall flow together into the land of their fathers, no longer as rival nations, but as one people in joyous submission to their king and their God. So that's the other thing that we see in this millennial kingdom and the return of of the people into their land. Gentiles also seeing Jesus as Messiah. Lastly, the last four verses, also the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be uh, cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. And of course, that's just kind of, you know, bringing together north and south and their families all together once again as, as, as one nation. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. That is an interesting thing. Because folks, as you know, the word Palestine was a word that was used by the Romans to call that land uh, to mock Israel. And, and they, they used that word Philistine or I should say Palestine, that comes from the word Philistine. So it's an interesting thought as to what's going to happen here because there's so many people wanting land for the Palestinians. But that may be for a later time. They shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, which is east of the, of the Jordan River in Jordan. And the people of Ammon shall obey them also on the east side of the Jordan. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt, which means that the Lord will uh, destroy the, the, uh, you know, the, the way, you know, the, uh, the water that is there uh, uh, separating uh, them from their land and coming, allowing them to come through, just like in the days of the Exodus. <clears throat> With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shaw, just as in the Exodus. And there will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria, as it was for Israel in that day that he, come, that he came up from the land of Egypt. <sighs> okay, so in the reign of Messiah, then the nations will not go to war anymore. Conflicts will be justly and swiftly settled by the Messiah and his government. Disobedient nations here described as the Philistines and Edom and Moab and the people of Ammon, the traditional enemies of Israel, will be punished. And then any and every obstacle to the gathering of those dispersed among the nations will be taken away. Nothing will be able to oppose the government of Messiah. Nothing. That is the millennial reign of Christ. And it brings to mind the last time that this is mentioned to us in the book of Isaiah. So I I bring you back to Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so this, in fact, becomes a more detailed reminder of the Davidic dynasty, of the Messiah who will come as the child, who was born, a son that is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. But when he comes, he will not look like a child. That was his first coming. When he comes a second time, he comes in all of his glory, in all of his might. As a matter of fact, when you read the book of Zechariah, you realize that he will come in such awesomeness to place his feet upon the Mount, upon the mount of Olives and face that eastern gate that has been shut by the opposers and the enemies of Israel who have laid in front of that gate the, the cemetery of, 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 of the enemies of, of, of the people of Israel for the purpose of making it unclean. But it's the Messiah who comes who will move that whole valley out of the way to bring His people through that gate. And it's a marvelous, marvelous picture when you go to Israel and you see that gate and you think, one day Jesus is going to walk through that gate. Because He said He would. And the prophecies say that He will. The Word of God, you can count on. It's going to happen. Everything that happened to bring Jesus, all the prophecies that pointed to His first coming, all of them were fulfilled. Every one of them. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened. Even thousands of years. Genesis chapter 3, the promise of the Messiah coming. Every prophecy fulfilled. Is Jesus coming? Yes. Is He coming soon? Yes. Are we needing to get ready? Yes. Let's get ready. Let's pray.